Open your Bibles, if you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Last week we started into this chapter. Um, I know that we'd be spending a little extra time in chapter 5 because there's just so much good stuff there. And this morning we're going to be looking at the middle section, verses 11 through 17. Um, and I want to tell you, just a personal, I really enjoyed studying this section. Just personally, I, I, had, I had fun. I really did. Um, we are, we're really blessed in the Valley to have a really good pastoral association. I know that most of you might not make contact with this group um, but in, in the now almost 40 years I've been in ministry, I don't think I've ever seen a pastoral group that functions as well. We get anywhere from 15 to, to 30, which is by no means all the pastors in the valley, but we got a good group, good cross-section. And um, the way it works is each month a different church hosts it, and this was our month, so each Thursday... Uh, through February, we had the Valley Pastors Prayer Network. I'm reaching over here because we sit over there. It's not picking on anybody over there. Um, we met each Thursday, and we do pray. Yeah, it's cool. We do pray. And um, one of the things the host is responsible for is sharing a devotion. So this month, or this last week, I shared this with them, what I'll be sharing with you this morning. It was kind of picking their brain because it was, it was good. It was good. So um, let's go ahead and get to our text before we get any farther. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul writes, Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope we're made manifest also in your consciences. Not that we are again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, not in heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet no longer do we know him in this way. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the, the great testimony that we heard, Father, of your work in redeeming a life, and your, your work in honoring, Father, the honest pursuit of a heart. Even though it was a corruptible heart, Lord, and a corrupted heart, Father, you honored the pursuit of our hearts, and Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So, again, like last Sunday, I want to focus on one particular item in this section. In fact, it's going to be one phrase. But what we want to do is we want to look over the whole section first. We always want to be careful to stay within the context of what Paul's talking about. Then we're going to focus in on that one area and then finally ask how this speaks to us. So, Alex, if we can get that image up. I'm going to be referring to this in a little bit, but I want to just let you focus on it for a few moments here and, and meditate on it. So let's take an overview of, the, of this section of Scripture first. Uh, verse 11 starts out by saying, knowing the fear of the Lord. That's going to connect him, us right back to what Paul said we looked at last week. We will all stand in judgment. We talked about that in verse 10. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I hope that was clear. We're talking about as believers standing before God in judgment, not the question of heaven and hell. That should already be settled. The question of whether we're going to heaven or whether we're going to hell um, should already be settled. 
for every one of us. Uh, John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 through 13, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so you may know you have eternal life. If you have accepted the offer of forgiveness and life in Christ, you have eternal life. That's it. That's like, what's the flat line? I like that. It's a flat line verse. If you've accepted Christ, you're found in Him. That's, that's eternal life. That's where it starts, right? So when we talk about the judgment that is in verse 10, that's not a judgment as to, as to heaven or hell. That's a judgment as to what heaven's going to look like. Because the Bible never says eternity will look the same for all of us. How we spend eternity is in large measure influenced with what we do in the here and now. That's that judgment he's talking about back in that 10th verse. And that causes us, or certainly should cause us, to walk with a certain amount of, of sobriety. Yes, a fear of the Lord, because we're going to be judged. And not, not that we're afraid of God being mean, or God being malicious, or God... Absolutely fair. But the whole idea that we will stand before Him to be judged as to our works should bring a certain sobriety. I had the um, opportunity when I was in the military to be a witness at a captain's mast. And for those that haven't been in a maritime service, a captain's mast is kind of like a court-martial, only it's at sea. And it goes back to the old sailing days. When you're in a captain's mast, you suddenly find yourself in a, in a long tradition of, of, of sail. And the captain traditionally would set up his, his chair in front of the mast, and then everybody came together. And there's, there's a, a measure of absolute authority in that moment that is, you can't miss it. And the remarkable thing about that, I wasn't the one that was charged. A young man had fallen asleep on watch. It's a really serious offense. I happened to be the one that caught him and filed the report, and it went up the chain from there. But every man that walked out of that captain's mast said the same thing. They said, I was terrified. I was scared spitless. And I wasn't even the guy on trial. But it's, it's just the seriousness of the moment creates that very real sense of, of awe and respect. And that's what Paul's talking about here, the fear of the Lord. So we have this fear, and because of that, because of that, we attempt to persuade people to prepare for it. And that's what he's saying in verse 10, right? We, we try to persuade people knowing the fact that we're all going to face this judgment. Verses 12 and 13, Paul places that in the context of his relationship with the Corinthian church. They know one another. Paul and his companions have invested a lot in this church, and he wants them to understand why he's saying what he's saying. Yeah, what I'm saying sounds extreme, Paul's saying. It is extreme. It is extreme to say that the way you and I experience eternity forever is profoundly influenced by how we spend the next year, two years. Some of you are young enough. You may eke out another 50. But even 50 is compared to eternity. And to say that how we experience that is determined by how we spend it, that's an extreme statement, but it's nonetheless true. Paul wants them to understand. That's why he's saying it. Uh, verses 14 and 15 are the central portion of the text, so we're going to come back to that. But again, we just want to wrap up a, a quick overview. Verse 16, now we recognize no man according to the flesh. That relates back to what he said at the beginning of the chapter. We don't want to be found naked. He's not talking about clothes. He's talking about our carnal self. 
We don't want to be seen and known for our carnal, our carnal self, the person we used to be. We want to be seen for the person that we've become in Christ, that Christ is making us. And then he makes a statement, and again, I just want to touch on this quickly, that kind of confuses people. He talks about not knowing Christ according to the flesh, like we used to. But now we know him not according to the flesh. And that's kind of confusing because we're talking about Jesus in the flesh. Um, and that only makes sense if they actually saw him physically. So it doesn't kind of make sense in this setting. I would suggest that what Paul is saying is we no longer know him according to our flesh, which is exactly what Brad was talking about. You have to get past a, a, a carnal, natural, humanistic knowledge of Christ and understand him through the lens of faith to truly understand all that he's done. So that's what Paul is saying when he gets in that section, right? So the whole idea is um, that Paul is, is, is wrapping up this idea that we've come to the place of being a new creature. Um, it's a new economy. We're going to walk in relationship with Christ in a way the world might not understand, and that all requires faith. That's what he talks about in Ephesians. I pray the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so you would know the riches of the hope of his calling. So that's the flow of what he's saying through this section. But what I really want to zero in on is what he says in verses 14, right? We've dealt with the idea of judgment, the sobering reality. We need to be conscious of that. We need to do our best to ensure that others know it too and walk by faith to prepare ourselves for that. But right in the middle of that, he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ constrains us, having judged this, that one died for all, and all have died. And I want to focus on this morning on that phrase, the love of Christ constrains us. Some of your translations will say control. The love of Christ controls us. The word literally means hold together. It's to hold things together. And it's sometimes used in kind of a negative way, like when an illness constrains us. Scripture talks about that when some type of infirmity limits us or controls what we can do. Um, it's also used to describe a crowd of people coming in and, and constraining or controlling Jesus so he couldn't just walk where he wanted to walk. But it's also used in a positive way, the way like a deliberate decision, I will conduct myself in this way, has a constraining influence or a controlling influence. So it's got a kind of a broad range of meanings, all with this idea of, of controlling um, constraining. But what does it mean to say the love of Christ constrains us? And that's what I shared with the pastors. Again, we got like 15, 20 pastors and ministers, and we represent a really good broad spectrum of, of, of traditions in the fellowship. And so I just went around in a circle. I read that passage. I said, I want you to visualize it. What, when I say, or when Paul says, the love of Christ constrains us, what comes to your mind? And we had 15 really great responses, and I found they all followed two patterns. The first was every one of them reflected who they were. You know, we all bring a perspective. A really good friend of ours, uh, Dwayne Geisinger, who pastors Sunday Connect Chapel, we've known him for a long time. He loves to fish. Dwayne is all about fishing, right? So when he, when he, when he visualized the love of Christ constraining him, he talked about the housing around the impeller on a jet boat. Right? Because you have that, and we, I don't know, when I think about a jet boat, I think about the impeller, right? That thing that spins. But if you don't put the housing around it, nothing happens. The water just goes everywhere. 
but if you, if you put a housing around it, it focuses the energy of the impeller and the boat goes forward. So that was Dwayne's perspective based on who he was as a fisherman. And that was common to everybody, right? Everybody's visualization reflected who they were. But they also had this very clear element that the love of God constrains us in that it, it, like it wraps around us to protect us. It goes before us, not only in the sense of pushing back against anything that might oppose us, but also pushing back against us a little bit. If we get going too fast, like slow down, bucko, you need to take it you know, slower. Or even behind us, like if God is moving, calling us to do something and we're getting a little reluctant, God can kind of get behind us and give us a bit of a shove. This idea that God is all around us. So we all went, went through that and shared that, and, and that was really encouraging to me because, and I say because, when I had first read this, the love of Christ constrains us, and I, this is you know more than a week back now, I was just meditating on this, thinking, what does it look like? The minute I asked that question, this is what came to my mind. And it, it was startling how quickly it did. Right? And for those that don't recognize this, and I wouldn't blame you, this is Peril Strait. How many know where Peril Strait is? Or Tom knows? Yeah, good old Southeast folks know where Peril Strait is. If you look at a map of Southeast, you will see Chichikov Island and Baranoff Island. If you don't look carefully, it will look like one island. Because the body of water that separates them is really skinny, right? And this is it. This is a picture of Peril Strait. Can you imagine putting a state ferry through that? They do. Right. Um, Peril Strait's about 50 miles. This, again, this is the first thing that came to my mind. The love of God constrains us. Peril Strait's 50 miles long, east to west, right? The eastern opening is about two miles wide. The western opening is quite a bit wider. But there's a stretch in the middle that's less than 1,500 feet wide, right? And it's a couple miles long. And right in the middle of it is Big Rose Island. So you got 1,500 feet, right? And about a 500-foot island right in the middle of it, which leaves you like 500 feet on each side, right? It is really, really gnarly. And um, as they say, you, there are some spots there, if you're on the ferry, you can almost touch, right? It's, it's, it's a wild way. If you've never had the chance to do it, I, I recommend it for everybody. The other thing that makes Peril Strait, obviously named for a good reason, that makes Peril Strait so, so amazing is... Again, if you look at a map of Southeast, one of the things you'll notice is you got, you know, got Glacier Bay, that big body of water, and you got all those fjords and inlets that are so amazingly gorgeous that all, you know, cut into the mainland. They get tides in Southeast. Tom, what's the biggest tide you ever saw? Like 24, 25 feet? Somewhere in that, when that thing drops 20 to 25 feet, that water has to go someplace or come in someplace. It has to go through those little narrow inlets like Cross Sound. And, all, it, and when it comes through there, it's smoking. They've measured currents of 20 miles an hour through this gap, right? right? So putting a boat through there is really, really perilous. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. That's the whole point. And if you don't pay attention, as the crew of the Lacante did a few years ago, you end up on the rocks. You see, God's love constrains us. It literally says, this is the way you will go, and if you don't go that way, you get in trouble. See, the, the thing to note is, we look at the rocks and say, well, why would God put all these rocks here? You know, the rocks you see aren't the danger. The danger are the rocks you don't see. 
And the rocks you do see, along with the navigational charts and the lights and all that other good stuff, they're to help you see the dangers you can't see. And his love is there to provide us the visuals or the audio or whatever else is necessary to keep us from getting messed up. The love of Christ provides these things. And not just in a passive way. The love of Christ actually brings these things before us. It keeps us from the danger of wandering off wherever we want. It literally is his love that keeps us on course. He says, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Two conclusions. Number one, the constraints that we face on a daily basis, the things that hem us in, that say this is what you're supposed to do, are a direct result of his death and resurrection. Those are the things that guide us. He said this in John 16, 17. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. That's that same paraclete I talked about last week. The Holy Spirit present in our lives to saying, you do this, you don't want to do that keeps us from just going our own way. He speaks through his word. He speaks by the power of the spirit. And the point is, we can only recognize and respond to those restraints to the extent we have died to sin and self. And that's what verse 15 is all about. He died for all, but those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It is only as we are focused on the person of Christ that we have the perception that we need to read the signs that keep us from being on the rocks. And so the application, of, I think, of this is so absolutely clear, right? First off, the constraints he puts in our life, the, 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 the things he puts in, in our life to guide us, call us to recognize, again, the seriousness, the sobriety of the situation, reminding us that judgment is real. That moment of judgment is real. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for men once to die, and after this comes judgment. What happens after we die? We face judgment. Straightforward answer, right? My experience of eternity will be determined by how I invest myself now. You read the parables of our Lord. The parables of the talent, the man who goes away and entrusts to his servant one ten talents, one five, one one, and the issue is what do they do with it? And when he comes back, the rest of their experience with that master is defined by what they did in his absence. Now I genuinely believe the Lord focuses in on monetary things like that, not just because they're the only thing that matter, but because they're the easiest for us to understand. It's pretty black and white. How we invest our resources, our financial resources, is pretty black and white, right? But it's not just our finances. It's how we manage and invest everything of value with which we've been entrusted. As far as I'm concerned, the most thing, the most valuable thing I've been entrusted with is my family. And how I invest in my family determines my eternity. And I, I will share this with you very, very bluntly. When the door was open for Joyce to accept the position of executive director at HeartReach, I took long, hard stock in what it was going to cost me. Because I knew it was going to cost me. Right? Instead of my being able to come home in the evening and say, Honey, here's all the junk I dealt with today. Can you just please sit there and listen? Now she's the one that comes home 
and says, Honey, here's all the junk I dealt with today. Can you please just sit there and listen? You know that's really hard for a guy? We are wired to solve things. And I figured out really quickly that's not what she was asking me for. I kind of had a clue that was coming. But I'll be very honest with you. I'm just going to be straight with you. One of the reasons I encouraged her to accept that position wasn't just because I could see she was manufactured for that position, and that's what God was calling her to. One of the reasons was I have a confidence that when I stand before God in judgment, I'm going to get part of the reward she has earned. I'm sorry, that's a, that's a calculation on my part. Right? The fact that I have invested in her ministry. I invest, thank you for asking that. I invest in what she does. And if the parables of Jesus, if they mean what I think they mean, I've invested something for his kingdom, I get a reward for it. Even if it's as simple as, my being there when she wants to talk, when she comes home, and I want to fix it, but I can't. My job is to listen, right? I'm just making a point. Everything we have of value, everything we have of value, we manage it for the interest of his kingdom. There's a reward for it. That's a serious thing to know. We need to recognize the seriousness of the situation that we're in. What we've been given, we have been given so much. And it's been entrusted to us to invest it for his kingdom, right? And I have fun, by the way, too. I love watching her do her thing. It's amazing. Second thing in application. Recognize the guides, the signs we have been given are there to help us. You know, when we say the love of Christ, I don't know about anybody, but when I think about the love of Christ, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of this foggy, misty, emotive thing, you know, his love for me. No. You read through Scripture, when you read about his love going all the way back to the Old Testament, it's action. When God demonstrated his love to the people of Israel, what did he do? He acted. He delivered them from Egypt. And all of those miracle signs and wonders, action, right? God's love is experienced in action, right? God so loved the world that he what? Gave. That's an action, right? This is no different. He's given us his word. He's given us his church to guide us that's, a, that's an active thing that he has done to guide us, right? And yet, he's given us, when I say the church, I'm not just talking about the present body, although we certainly draw a lot from that. How about the 2,000-year history of the church? We're a little slow in our Western Christianity to tap into the wisdom of a 2,000-year history of the church. That's kind of lame. You say, well, how do I tap into the 2,000-year history of the church? All the collective wisdom of the church. How do I do that? Well, you could go out and buy a copy of the early church fathers and read what they wrote 2,000 years ago, but it's actually easier and cheaper. How about the hymns that we sing? You ever think about the hymns that we sing that go back three, four, five hundred years as tapping into the wisdom of the church? I know a lot of people aren't comfortable with sins because they say, with hymns rather, because they use these words I don't understand. Look them up. Google it. Right? We just sang you know, about Ebenezer. What's in Ebenezer? It's got nothing to do with Scrooge. Right? What does it have to do with? Well, if you read Samuel, you know that Israel won a battle. They had no chance of winning. And after the battle, 
Samuel says, we're going to put a big rock right here, and we're going to call that rock Ebenezer, which means a rock of help, which means in the future, when we are really scared, really nervous, and think we're going to lose, we can look at that rock and we can remember, like the little you were talking about in your belt, right? Same idea. Those points of contact, so when I'm discouraged, I can look back. So the church has taught me over its history, through hymns, some really wise, smart things to do. Right? When we sing a hymn, if you don't know one of the words, write it down, go home and Google it. Right? Right? Who to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. How many have used the word interpose this week? Unless you were playing Scrabble, probably not, right? We can kind of figure out what that means, but when I go home and Google it, I discover that it means to actively step in between two conflicting parties. It's a very technical word. Oh, the early church was smart. So when I am conflicted, I have something coming against me. I know that Jesus is actively stepping in the middle interposing his blood. And who do I conflict with the most when I'm trying to work in such a way as to honor Christ and build his kingdom? I conflict with myself. My carnal nature is my biggest enemy. So when my carnal nature rises up, I can remember, because I just sang it last week, that he interposes his blood even between me and my own fallen nature. That's very encouraging. That's very helpful. So recognize the seriousness of the situation. Recognize that we can learn from the past, the guides, the, all of the signs were given, right? I had forgotten, Scott pointed it out, that there's a, a line of buoys through this narrow, narrow channel that alternate green and red and green and red, and that's what, how they navigate at night. Which brings me to my third point. Recognize the beauty and the joy of his constraints. Instead of looking at the things that Christ puts in our life and say, no, you don't want to do that. No, you don't want, you want to do this. You're going to get in trouble if you do that. You're going to be disappointed if you do that. You need to do this. Instead of looking at those as, as just, oh, God's saying I can't do stuff and I'm not happy, see the beauty of it. This is one of the most dangerous stretches of water you'll ever go through. It's also one of the most gorgeous places you will ever go on this earth. There is a beauty in Peril Strait that is absolutely magnificent. Both the difficulty and the challenge and the beauty can be found in the constraining act of God. And finally, there's actually an ease. There is a rest and an ease in recognizing the constraining acts of God. There's, a, there's an ease in it. There's a, there's a simple rest to be found there. Um, I looked up the Clinket name for Peril Strait. I won't try to pronounce it because I'd kill it. But what it literally means, the Clinket name for this body of water, I love it, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. It literally means when the tide is running, park your canoe and sit. Barrel straights. When the tide is screaming through there at 20 knots, you don't want to try to paddle your canoe through there. Pull over to the side and sit and rest for a while. There is rest found in recognizing his guidance in our life. Father, I thank you that um, as we go through this life, Lord, we sometimes 
I know I'm, I speak for myself, Lord. Sometimes I really get caught up and I'm trying to do the right thing and it's not working out. And half the time I'm the one that's messing it up. And I really get frustrated, Lord, if, if we can just have the wisdom to stop and pause and, and read, you know, read your word. That, that's the best guide we could possibly hope for. Listen to the voice of your spirit directing us. And then just have the wisdom, Lord, to look at the natural things around us that are guiding and directing us and realizing that, Father, what you're really trying to do is keep us on the right path. And that as we follow that path, Father, there, there's, there's anticipation of reward in eternity, and there's a rest and a joy in the present, Lord. Help us to, to, to live and walk that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.